You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 13, and we're going to read verses 21 through verse 30. John 13. Beginning verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Let's bow together. Our gracious God, we come to you because we need your help and assistance in understanding your word and applying it rightly. And so we pray, Father, that you would send the Holy Spirit to be our comforter, our guide, and our instructor this morning as we look at your word open your word to us. It is in the unfolding of your word that we see light, and we ask that our hearts and our minds might be open to the meaning of this scripture, and that we might see and hear things which we can apply to our own lives, and things which you will use to sanctify us and make us holy. Conform us, we pray, to the image of Christ in and through your word. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I said something last week that I need to offer a correction for. Uh, occasionally I have to do this. This was uh, picked up by one of my children. One of my daughters said this. Any one of my children could have could have offered this correction and said this was what I said was wrong, but uh, not all of them were paying attention apparently because even as we had the discussion about what it was that I said, a couple of my kids looked at me with this blank look on their face. I don't remember you saying that. So. Thanks, son. <laughs> it's not either one of my sons. Um, I made the statement last Sunday that I have never in my life read a, a, a mystery novel. Remember me saying that? Some of you, even now, I don't remember you saying that. You were sleeping as well. My daughter said to me when we got home, what about the Hardy Boys? Now, if that counts, then I have read tons of mystery novels in my life. But I wasn't even thinking of the Hardy Boys. In fact, if it were not for Frank and Joe Hardy and their series of adventures, I don't even think I would have gotten out of high school because I would have, but would not have been able to submit a book report. And I couldn't have submitted a book report without Frank and Joe Hardy. So I have them to thank for my diploma. And I make that a correction because part of my testimony is how God used the Hardy Boys, not anything in the books, but my interest in the Hardy Boys, to bring me to somebody who understood and knew the gospel. And there was somebody who lived a couple of doors down from where I grew up who had the entire hardback collection, which was something substantial. That's the first 59 books of the series. And I could get off on a tangent here, but... 60 through wherever they're at today are all soft covers. And you know why there are some hardbacks and some soft covers? It's because after the 59th book, the original Franklin W. Dixon died, 
And the person who took over writing the Hardy Boys series wrote 60 through wherever they're at today, and they have other series that they're doing as well. So the original hardbacks, the original first 59, and even had a rare book, which was a, a collector's item. It was a book that was published as a hardback that should have been published as a paperback. And it was a very rare thing. He had one of those as well. So I went down there to see the whole collection. He lived just a couple doors down from me. And well, he was a Christian, and through him I started coming to Kootenai Community Church, and I heard the gospel here, and church sent me to Cocolic Bible Camp where I heard the gospel again, and eventually God saved me there. So it was my interest in the Hardy Boys that connected me to Christians who knew the gospel and shared it with me. So I have read tons of mystery novels in my life, just to clear that up. Now, that was all part of uh, the introduction to last week's message, which we had to break into the passage that we just read, verses 21 through 30. We broke that passage into two because there was a lot there. This, And because we did that, I'm going to jump back just real quick and give a, a little bit of background and a little bit of review to those of you who may not have been here last Sunday. This is Jesus' final night with his disciples. They're in the upper room there and enjoying the Passover meal together. Jesus has washed the feet and then he taught the disciples the lesson that they were to learn about sacrificial service from the foot washing. And when they were all done with that, between verse 20 and 21, we surmise, this is speculation, that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper there. With all 12 of the disciples present, uh, Jesus says in Luke 22, when he is explaining the meaning of the supper, he said, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. So we suggest that Judas was there for that. And it is in the discussion of the Lord's Supper and the betrayal that surrounds that evening that in verse 21, Jesus' heart became troubled. He became anxious, and, anxious is the wrong word, uh, unsettled in spirit, unsettled mentally and spiritually, and he began to say to the disciples, one of you will betray me. So that sort of sets up what uh, we covered last week, verses 21 through 26. And we saw the betrayal of Christ predicted, and then we saw the betrayer of Christ identified. And we covered all the way through the end of verse 26. A couple things that we can learn from all of that, and something that sort of stands out. Do you notice how the Lord kept all of this hidden from the disciples? Not all of it, but most of it. He kept much of what was going on there hidden from the disciples. He could have told all 12 of them who the betrayer was, how much he was going to betray them for, when he had met with the Pharisees, which Pharisees he was meeting with. He could have revealed every detail of their plan, of Judas's plan and the Pharisees' plan to the disciples. But he didn't. He kept it hidden from them. And even when he identified Judas, he only identified Judas to Peter and to John, but he didn't reveal when Judas was going to betray him. Why do you think the Lord kept all of that hidden from the disciples for the time that He did? It was because certain events had to unfold exactly as the Lord Jesus wanted them to unfold. He only revealed as much as was necessary to ensure that everything that happened that evening would unfold just as He wanted it to happen. And no differently. And the Lord hides many things from us for the same purpose, I believe. I think there's a lesson there for us to learn. We don't understand all that the Lord is doing. Why Why does the Lord allow His people to suffer persecution in the Middle East? Why Why is ISIS doing what they are doing? Why is our nation in turmoil? Why, are, why is that, that diagnosis terminal? Why is this going on with your kids? Why is this happening at your job? The Lord doesn't reveal all those things. Look, He does reveal enough for us to know that we can trust Him with the details because He rules over all of it. But He doesn't reveal to us everything that He is doing, and that is by His grace. It is by His grace that He keeps so much hidden from us. And I think the Lord keeps everything hidden that He needs to keep hidden to ensure that the plan will unfold exactly as He wants it to happen. Because it is Jesus and not Judas who is in control of the drama of this evening in John 13. Remember that. It is Jesus and not Judas who is in control of the timing of His death. 
He's not going to die one moment before he had to die. He's not going to die one moment before he must die. It is Jesus who is controlling the terms of his death and the timing of his death. He said in John chapter 10, I lay down my life. Nobody takes it from me. I lay it down of my own initiative and I take it up again. And this commandment I have received from the Father. So the good shepherd came to die for his sheep. He came to die for his sheep on his timetable, on his terms, his way, exactly as he planned to do it. He wasn't going to run from it. And so all of this is unfolding according to his plan. That is why he keeps much of this hidden from the disciples. Now I want to set up for you the the environment of what was going on there. We read through it, uh, the passage, and if, if you weren't here last week, there are a few things there that will strike you as kind of odd. Remember the scene is them sitting on three sides of a table, uh, not sitting at the table, but the table being low, they were reclining at it. And so everything leading up to verse 27 would have went something like this. We're sort of putting together the pieces from John as well as the other gospel writers. The disciples were reclining around the table with their feet extended away from the table, leaning on their left arm, which is would have been the custom, and leaving their right hand free to secure and eat food. And they would have been uh, lying there in a certain order, which the head of the table, that is Jesus, would have prescribed to each of the disciples. If they went by custom or they went according to what normally would have happened, uh, Jesus would have assigned seating to each one of the disciples in the way that he had uh, determined to do so that evening for his own purposes. So they're reclining at the table, leaning on their left-hand side, and the Scripture says, that uh, when Jesus revealed that one of them, whose hand was with his on the table that night, would betray him, that the disciples began to look at one another and wonder about who it is. And they began to discuss with one another which one of them Jesus was speaking of. And each of the disciples in turn started to ask him, Lord, is it I? And Jesus said no to each one until Judas asked him, Lord, is it I? And Judas then, uh, Jesus then said to Judas, it is as you have said it is. That's Matthew 26. I think it's verse 25 where that happens. Now, in order for Judas to ask the Lord quietly, Lord is it I, and for Jesus to reveal that to Judas without the rest of the disciples hearing, we surmise or speculate that Judas was sitting, sitting behind or to the left of the Lord Jesus, which would have been the seat of honor. John was sitting in front of or at Jesus, the side of Jesus' bosom, which is why John could lean back after Peter signaled to him and said, ask Jesus who it is. John could lean back against Jesus' chest, just like you would lean over shoulder to shoulder and whisper in somebody's ear. John could lean back against Jesus' chest and say, Lord, who is it? And Jesus could say, it is the one for whom I'm going to dip the morsel of bread and give it to him. And at some point in that evening or that conversation, Judas leaned forward and said, Lord, is it I? And Jesus said, it is as you have said. And he took the bread and he gave it to Judas. And that act identified Judas as the betrayer to only Peter and John who knew the meaning of that symbol. So that is the betrayer... That is the betrayal predicted and the betrayer identified. And now we pick it up in verse 27. In verse 27. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now we'll kind of work through this, uh, we'll kind of work through the narrative, just taking it little by little and explaining it and seeing how this unfolds. After Jesus identified, uh, gave the sign by which John and Peter would know who the betrayer was, He took the bread and he dipped it in the sop and handed it to Judas. As I said last week, that was a way of honoring the person who was in the seat of honor. And doing this for Judas would have raised the suspicion of none of the other disciples. But Peter and John would have known, but none of the other disciples would have known. And in handing that piece of bread to Judas, Judas ate of the bread. And John says in verse 27 that after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Now, this is one of two occasions that we read of in the Gospels where Satan entered into Judas. The first was earlier in the week, in Luke chapter 22, verses 3 and 4. Luke says, And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, 
belonging to the number of the twelve, and he went away and discussed with the chief priest and the officers how he might betray him. So when Judas initiated the betrayal, and he made the, took the initiative to go to the chief priests and the Pharisees to discuss terms of betrayal, Satan was there in Judas during that action. And then he left at some point, and now this evening when Judas took the sop and ate the sop, at that point Satan entered into him. Now, that is a terrifying thought, is it not? This is not a demon, this is not legion, this is not any, this is no principality or power. It's not your just average run-of-the-mill fallen angel. This is Satan himself who entered in to Judas and took possession of Judas. And somehow we are to understand that it was connected to the sop. Because John is specific to say it is after Judas took the sop and ate of it that Satan entered into him. You know, Flip Wilson used to have that line, the devil made me do it. It was always good for a laugh. But that's no laughing matter, is it? Just these words give us some idea of the spiritual reality going on that evening and and a glimpse into it that John that evening, I don't think, saw it. None of the other disciples saw it. But looking back upon it, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John, reflecting upon that evening and writing about it later, said, when Judas took that sop, Satan entered into him and took possession of Judas. Now, how is this possession connected to the piece of bread? It is not the piece of bread which was inhabited by Satan, Right, connected to the piece of bread. And Judas ate that, and so in ingesting the piece of bread, he got a demon with it, or a fallen angel with it. And there are people who think that demons are connected to objects. If you have a book in your house, or a, a little troll, or you know your neighbor has a troll on his back deck, that there's a demon attached to that. If you think that spiritual entities are attached to objects, you are gaining your theology from pagan mysticism and not anything from the Scriptures. It is not because the sop itself was possessed of Satan and Satan entered in through the sop. It is something connected with Judas eating the sop that then Satan entered into him. What was it? I can only speculate, but here's what I think was going on. Now, this is sanctified speculation, which is the best kind. Here's what I think was going on. The act of taking the sop and dipping it and handing it to the man who had the seat of honor was a way, it was a, it was a gesture of friendship. It was handing him bread. It was a way of honoring Judas. It was a kind, gracious, kind-hearted, loving, friendly thing for Jesus to do. And it would have been a way, I think, of Jesus appealing to Judas one last time. When Jesus took the sop and he dipped it, and he honored Judas very graciously by handing it to Judas, imagine the eye contact. Jesus looking at Judas and handing him that piece of bread. One of the most loving and gracious things that Jesus could have done for Judas that evening was that act. After washing his feet and doing it that and making eye contact with Judas. I believe it was at that moment that Judas looking at Christ and receiving that sop of bread, his hard heart was not softened. It was hardened. And that act of grace and kindness only served to to inflame the hatred for the light that Judas had. And he was hardened in his sin, and he became resolute in his intention to betray this friend who had been so gracious to him. And when he had given himself over to that intention, and his heart was inflamed with that hatred, I think that at that moment he was so given over to his love for darkness that Satan came and possessed him. It's not because the devil was in the sop. 
It is because Judas, in receiving that act of kindness, was not softened by it. He was hardened by it. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, says, Many are made worse by the gifts of Christ's bounty and are confirmed in their impenitency by that which should have led them to repentance. The kindness of God should lead men to repentance, but is it not true that some of the people who are the most impenitent and the most hardened and hate Christ the most are the ones who have received so much of his common grace and bounty and his gifts, his good, good gifts and good life? That's true, isn't it? Because sometimes the gifts and the grace of Christ do not serve if they're not intended to do that. They do not serve to soften the heart, but they only serve to harden the heart. And I think that's not what happened with Judas. And the devil took possession of him. That is a, that those are stunning words. And they indicate, by the way, that Judas was not a believer. Everything we read about Judas in the Gospels, that he was a devil, that he was a betrayer, that he was the son of perdition, that he didn't belong to Christ, that Christ chose him for that purpose of betraying him, that he was the one who would lift up his heel and betray Christ. Everything in Scripture revealed about Judas indicates that Judas was never a believer, not from the very beginning. Not from the very beginning. And you say, are there people who actually think that Judas at one time was a believer? There are. People who think that Christians can be demon-possessed will point to Judas. And they'll say, see, here was a man who was one of the twelve. He was a believer in Christ. And yet he, through his own fault, stopped believing and he became demon-possessed. Or people who believe that Christians can lose their salvation will point to Judas. And they will say, here was a man who was a Christian. He was one of the twelve and he believed at some point. And then he stopped believing. And so he lost his salvation. Judas was never a believer. He was never a believer who lost his salvation. He was never a believer who was eventually demon-possessed. He was not a believer from the very beginning. In fact, he was the son of perdition, and he was a fake believer, a false believer. And we'll return to that when we get to the end. Now, look at verse 28. Verse 21, verse 27. Well, sorry, we're not done with verse 27. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. The word therefore there is key. It's therefore a reason. Why is the word therefore, therefore? Jesus knew that Satan took possession of Judas. Therefore, that is, for that reason, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Jesus knew, he was aware of the spiritual reality of what was going on, that when, when Judas took that sop and he ate it, and he was hardened in his resolute intention to betray the Son of God, the devil took possession of him, and Jesus, therefore, when the devil had taken position, possession of him, and Jesus knew that Satan was in possession of him, Jesus said to Judas, what you do, do quickly. Now that's kind of a curious command, is it not? J.C. Ryle in his commentary says we'll never really understand the meaning of what Jesus is, is grasping at there or what Jesus says when he says what you do, do quickly. It's just a bit beyond us. I think we can kind of grasp it a little bit. It is not that Jesus is trying to encourage Judas to sin. As if the Son of God was saying, hey, you're about to sin, so quick, go do it, quick. With his applause. That's not the idea. Nor is it that Jesus was impatient that Judas would do what he was doing and so... Jesus was trying to hurry it along. I don't think that that's what's going on. I think Jesus, knowing the spiritual realities and the condition of Judas's heart, we would paraphrase it this way. Jesus was saying to him, since you have given yourself over to this, and this is the path that you are determined to take, don't wait. Waste no time. This is what you're doing. This is what you want. Go do it and do it quickly. Leon Morris in his commentary suggests that maybe it was not Judas's intention to betray Christ this night at all. They had the whole week of that feast ahead of them when they would be celebrating, they would be having dinners together. And maybe it was that Judas intended at some point in the future, the next day or the day following, that then he would betray Jesus. But Jesus was going to die when the Passover lambs were being sacrificed in the temple. Jesus had to die the next day. 
to fulfill prophecy and to fulfill the type of the, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Jesus, maybe knowing that Judas was intending to do it some other time, is saying to Judas, now is the time. Why don't you just do it now? Since you have given yourself over to do it, do it quickly. And it might be that Judas, hearing that, understood exactly what Jesus was speaking of. And then Judas got up in haste to leave the twelve. And why does Judas get up and leave immediately? He gets up and leaves immediately because he realizes now that Jesus knows what he's doing. And Jesus knows that he knows what they're doing. They are having, Jesus and Judas are having their own line of communication open about his act of betrayal. And so when Jesus says to him, what you are doing, do quickly, he is saying to Judas, go ahead and do what you have intended to do. And Judas now is, is, is getting nervous. Peter and John have been given a sign. And Judas might be in his mind thinking, the gig is up. All of my plans can come crashing down. i got to get out of this room before the rest of the disciples figure out what's up. If Jesus knows what's up, it's probably only a matter of time before he tells the rest of them, I need to leave now. And so Judas is probably already intending to get up and go quickly. But Jesus is saying to him, what you do, do quickly. Now verse 28. I promised you we'd get there. No one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. The rest of the disciples were completely ignorant of what Jesus was intending by that statement. Um, this is one of the things that's so striking about the whole evening is that with this devil in their midst, as it were, and now with a man possessed of Satan in their midst, and Jesus has had this conversation with Judas, and Judas has got up and he has left, and Jesus has been speaking about a betrayer and one who has eaten his bread who would lift up his heel against him, and then he, he gave the bread to Judas. After having already said, the one who eats my bread will lift up his heel against me, Jesus took the bread and he gave it to Judas, and Judas ate it. And then Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. And Judas got up to leave, But the disciples were oblivious to that reality that evening. None of the eleven realized what Jesus was saying. Some of them thought that what he was doing was sending Judas out to buy more food for the rest of the feast. Look at verse 29. For some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast. There were more days left in the feast week. So these disciples would be having more meals together over the course of the next several days, if everything unfolded as it normally would. And so many of the disciples thought, what's he saying? What you do, do quickly. Well, maybe he wants to hurry up and, and secure food. So he's sending Judas out with a money box to get some food. Others there thought what Jesus was doing, verse 29, that he would give something to the poor, that he was sending Judas out to give something to the poor folk. And that was something that they would have done on Passover, by the way. It would have been an odd time to do it, like during the Passover meal, to instruct that money be given to poor people, but it wouldn't have been out of character for Jesus to do that. The fact that the disciples assumed that Jesus would direct that some of their common money be given to help the poor indicates that that was something that Jesus would have been known to do, that they would assume that Jesus would do this. So that's what they assumed that Judas was on his way to do. And Judas got up, and verse 30 says, So after he received the morsel, he went out immediately. And here's one of those little details in the Gospel of John that you don't think anything of. It was night. And then you rush on to the next verse. But that little, that little detail, it was night, speaks of more than just the time of day. Uh, John has done this at other times in his gospel. What does the imagery of night, what does the word night conjure up in your mind? Darkness, right? It conjures up the idea of, of darkness and quiet and the cover of darkness. Uh, elsewhere in John's gospel, in John chapter 10, do you remember when Jesus was walking in the temple in Solomon's portico? And it was the Feast of Dedication, so anybody reading that first century would have known exactly what time of year it was, probably what month that was. But John gives that little detail, and it was winter. Remember that? And that's one of those little details in John's Gospel that he sort of throws out there. But you get the idea that he is 
describing something there more than just the time of year. The, the whole imagery of winter, that it's dead, that it is cold, that it is wet, that it is rainy, that it is dark. That imagery is what's conjured up by the word winter. The word winter there would be apt to describe not just the time of year, but also the condition of the nation of Israel and the Pharisees and the hearts of the people at that crucial time in John's Gospel when Jesus had basically by that point been rejected by the entire nation. The word dark here is is similarly telling. I don't think that John is just intending to say, oh, by the way, it was past sunset and that we're supposed to move on. What was Judas doing? What was Judas's heart? It was dark. His intellect was darkened. Judas was now possessed by the prince of darkness. And he was about to walk out and go commit deeds of darkness under the cover of darkness. That whole idea of light and dark is something we have seen played off of each other all the way through John's Gospel. Back in chapter 1 in the prologue, John said, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus said, "If you walk, I am the light of the world, and he who walks... Uh, in me will not walk in darkness. He who believes in me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Uh, men love darkness rather than light. They don't want to come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. So they, they creep in the darkness. That whole idea of at night, John is saying more than just what time of day it is. He is saying that here was a man who was the son of darkness, a son of perdition, possessed by the prince of darkness, going out under the cover of darkness to do his deeds of darkness. And what was he leaving? Dark was not just the condition outside of that room. Dark was the condition of Judas's heart. And as he walks away from Christ, he is walking away from the one who is the light of the world. And so here's the vivid imagery. A man possessed by the prince of darkness walks out of the room where the light of the world is, and he walks out into the dark to commit his deeds of darkness. Judas was that man described in John chapter 3 when Jesus said, This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. There came a point when Judas was possessed by the prince of darkness that he could stand the presence of the light no more. And he walked out. And what was it outside? He walked right into darkness. And by the way, Judas, unrepentant, walked right into eternal outer darkness. No better word could be used to describe Judas and everything wrapped up in him than the word darkness or night. And here you thought you were just going to read that phrase, and it was night, and move on, right? There's a lot packed into those little details. Well, that is the betrayer dismissed. Jesus dismissed him from the group. There is a key and essential reason why Jesus dismissed him at that time. Because now, and I'm just going to give you a little bit of preview of next week, now everything is going to change in the whole conversation of that evening There is going to be a change beginning at verse 31. But you had to get Judas out of the room before Jesus could have that time with the true believers. Uh, I'm going to wrap this up by giving a couple of things that we learn here from the life of Judas. We're not going to talk about Judas again, at least not in any kind of detail, until John chapter 18. He comes on the scene again. So John 18, we'll take Judas and everything that Scripture reveals about him, and we'll kind of do a, a character study of Judas on the last reference to him in John's Gospel and see what we can learn from Judas then. But I'm going to borrow from that sermon, which is a few weeks away, John 18, to give you something for today. And I'm not at all worried that you're going to remember this sermon when we get to John 18. In fact, I wouldn't be at all worried that you would remember this sermon by dinner. So for those of you who are just waking up and joining us again, we've been talking about Judas. And here's what we learn about Judas. Number one, we learn the deceptive power of hypocrisy. 
Judas is the fake believer that John has been describing for 13 chapters. We have seen it over and over and over again in John that every time the word belief occurs, every time we read of somebody believing in him, we have to ask, what kind of belief is it? Is it merely an intellectual belief that goes along for the ride or is convinced by the signs? Or is it the type of belief that trusts and embraces one for salvation? What type of belief is John describing? Because we have seen John describe some people as believing in Jesus, and then Jesus turns right around and says, you're sons of the devil. You are of your father the devil, and you desire to kill me. And you are still slaves of your sin, and you're still slaves of the devil. And yet John describes those people as quote-unquote believers. Then we have other people, like the woman at the well, who is a genuine believer. And her life evidenced that belief. So over and over in John, we've had to ask, which type of believer is this? And John has compared and contrasted true belief from that fake belief, the charade belief. Judas is the quintessential fake disciple. And he lived under that self-deception for the entire time that he was with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the power of self-deception. When Judas was chosen as a disciple, I do not for one minute believe that he, at that moment, said, I'm going to look for an opportunity to betray this man. I think he jumped on. He was enjoying the time with the disciples. He was one of them. Uh, he pretended to be one of them. They gave him the money box. They turned it over to him. Jesus was never deceived, but the, 11, the other 11 were. And I believe that Judas was self-deceived. He thought he was a believer in the same way everybody else, all the other crowds who turned on Jesus were believers as well. Judas thought he was a genuine believer, but he wasn't. That is the power of self-deception and hypocrisy. That's why Scripture says examine yourselves to see if you be in the faith. Are you a believer because it is convenient? Are you a believer because your parents are believers? Are you believers because it's easy? There was a persecution this week and it would cost you your life to show up here next week. Would you be here? Are you a fake believer? You've got to examine yourself to see if you're being the faith. What type of faith is it that you have placed in Christ? Shallow belief? Or true belief. Judas is a warning of the power of self-deception and hypocrisy and hypocritical belief. Second thing we learn from Judas is that evidence does not and cannot convert anyone. There was no unbeliever in all of the land of Israel who was closer to Jesus Christ than Judas of Iscariot. No unbeliever in all of the land of Israel saw more miracles, more acts of compassion, and was exposed to more of his teaching than Judas Iscariot was. If it were possible for evidence and apologetic and persuasive teaching to convert anyone, Judas of Iscariot would have been converted. He had more of it than any other unbeliever who has ever lived because he lived amongst the twelve. But evidence cannot convert anybody because we have seen over and over in the Gospel of John that unbelief is not due to a lack of evidence. Unbelief is due to what? A love for darkness. It is because Judas loved darkness that he was an unbeliever. And evidence cannot convert, cannot convince anyone. No amount of evidence, all of the evidence in the world cannot take somebody who loves darkness and make them hate darkness and who loves the light, uh, uh, hates the light and make them love the light. No amount of evidence can do that. If it could, Judas of Iscariot would have been converted. The third thing that we, are, we learn here is the sovereign control that our Lord exercised over the timing and terms of his own death. And we're just reminded of that again. Jesus is the one who is he, he's not caught up in the drama of the evening. He is orchestrating the drama. Judas is playing his part. Everybody is playing his part. The rulers of the nation, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the Sadducees, Judas, all of them are playing their part. But Jesus is not caught up in these events and carried along by them. He is orchestrating all of them. All of this is under his sovereign control. He can stop it. He can alter it at any time. But he chooses not to. Why? Because he came to die 
for his sheep. And it's all unfolding exactly as he wants it to unfold. He himself is sovereignly in control of every detail that is unfolding that evening, and nothing can keep him from dying for his sheep. What a glorious gospel has been delivered unto us, is it not? And what a glorious gospel we have believed, if indeed our faith is real. And what a glorious God it is that we serve. Let's bow together. Our gracious God, we thank you again for these reminders from your word of the power of self-deception in our lives and in our hearts. And we cannot trust our heart. We never ought to trust our heart. Our hearts can lead us astray and lead us into all kinds of wickedness and deception. And so we pray that we might trust only your word and you and that we might rest and rely fully on Christ, not only for our salvation, but for our sanctification. May the love of the Father and the grace of Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon all those who have truly believed, both now in this life and also for all of eternity. According to your will, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.